Well, a good morning to you. Oh, we'll just check, uh, double check. Yes, okay, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday, December 29th. I'm Ryan Jesperson. Uh, thrilled to be here with you on this edition of Real Talk. want to give a shout out. This, These are, you know, the, the live viewers. If you're tuning in on the podcast later in the day, we're so grateful that that you continue to make us Canada's most downloaded daily news podcast, which is absolutely amazing. But you know we have this this army, this audience that comes together every single morning at 8.30 Mountain Time. And uh, what's really cool for us is from our perch, Sam Brooks and I, when we're getting ready to to launch the show, it shows us that that folks are waiting. They're like they're like in the listeners lounge, we'll call it. They're in the viewers lounge. They're in the green room, so to speak, Sam. And and, and we want to give a shout out to some of these. So, for example, James, James was very first on the comment line on the YouTube live comment stream this morning, wishing a good morning. Dixie quickly followed up. Dixie was number two in line. A shout out this morning to James and Dixie. Mark in Utah. Uh, was up third. Brenda was there right after that. Here's Rose and Kaylin and Cam and a pizzeria who's also uh, uh, Fatima and Greg and whoa, Brett Halford is watching this morning. Brett Halford is, is is tuning in from Spain this morning, which is absolutely excellent. You know, you don't get people tuning in from Spain all the time. What a special occasion here. Tim Young is chiming in. This is great. We're doing this live. Uh, one of the best parts about doing this live, even if you're catching the podcast later in the day, or maybe you're going to be listening to the these interviews. Heck, it could be January, February. Maybe it's in the middle of 2021. Maybe we're speaking to you in the future. Maybe in 2021, you're going to listen back to this podcast because you see who we've got on this morning and you want to hear these interviews. You know, how cool is that, that this is a podcast? Really, it's a show uh, that is live recorded. We're live streamed and then live recorded onto a podcast. So we have people checking out this show live right now on this Tuesday morning all the way through to who knows when uh, which is never lost on us how very cool that is the lineup this morning excellent we're going to be talking to Banff Alberta Mayor Karen Sorensen coming up in just a little bit everybody knows where Banff is everybody in in the world has heard about Banff it's this it's this mountain oasis it's it's this this paradise in the middle of the Rocky Mountains and what makes Banff Banff a big part of it anyway is the tourism it's 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 the 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 gathering of people hundreds of thousands millions of people a year that touch down in Banff to, to experience the Canadian Rockies to check out the beautiful scenery so what does a pandemic do to a so-called tourism economy? You know, at one point uh, earlier this year, and, and her worship will talk to us about this, I'm sure. We'll be sure to ask her about it. Banff actually had the highest per capita cases of COVID anywhere in the province. So how has that community rebounded? What has this meant for the seasonal workers? Many of them, of course, that are that are visitors to Canada themselves. What, what does Banff's landscape look like as we start talking about, you know, we're starting to transition into looking into 2021, right? We're starting to talk, I think, uh, optimistically, cautiously optimistic about a, a post-vaccine or a post-inoculation reality. What's this going to look like when we can start to get that confidence back? I mean, how excited are you? I, I envision specific things that I miss. I miss having to apologize to people in true Canadian fashion as I as I walk sideways. My buddy Slady, we called it. With him, we call it the Slady Slither. He'd slither his way through a crowded restaurant to make his way to the table. Sam, this guy's like this guy's like six foot seven. He's he he's a big animal. He's a big man, and so he's got to slither his way through crowded restaurants. But I miss that. You know, we always joke. We've said it before on the show. We miss actually. You know, having to apologize to people when we actually sort of tip and spill beer on people as we're making our way to the seats at the hockey game or 
how weird is it? You know, we've been conditioned uh, since really since March of, of 2020. That's, I think, when it became real here, uh, talking to a North American audience. Uh, if you were over in certain parts of Asia, certainly the, the pandemic was was very much more real uh, prior to March of of 2020. But but we've now been into this for about nine months. So we're conditioned a certain way. Are you like me? Do you find it strange? The, the thought of reaching out and shaking somebody's hand right now or the thought of hugging uh, somebody or the thought of, of gathering with your chums and like singing whatever song arm in arm. Does that, is that I mean, to look into a crowded movie theater right now, imagine 180 people, you know, shoulder to shoulder in a movie theater, you know, just just hammering down on, on fistfuls of popcorn and. And you hear somebody cough that, sorry, I'm just going to say it, that that kind of like that like thick, robust, phlegmy, you know, those types of coughs I'm talking about, like the cough where you're like, that dude's been hacking darts for 30 years, that kind of a cough. And we'd hear that behind us at a movie theater. And so long as we assumed the person was covering their mouth, it didn't throw us for a loop. That was normal. That was just a normal sound of a of a big public gathering. Well, now these days, I mean, imagine 180 people shoulder to shoulder in a movie theater and some some guys just hacking up a lung. Everyone would be people would be heading for the exits. Right. People would be digging into their purses for their N95 masks. People would be bathing in hand sanitizer. We've all become kind of conditioned. These things, this the, the idea of returning to normal. I can't wait to get to that return to normal. You know, I miss handshake. I miss the, the feeling, the connection of a handshake. Some people, it's been interesting to see some polling results. Some people have said they're actually, they're not, they don't believe they're going to go back to the handshake. They, they don't believe, they're, they're kind of happy to leave that one on the table. Do you have an opinion on that, Sam? Do you have an opinion? Or you were just, you were telling me that Bamps mayor is ready to go. Okay, let me ask you this though, real quick. Do you have, were you like a real handshake guy? I mean, have you always I, been- I love a good handshake. And frankly, I love a good hug. And, yes. And I'm like- I don't know. We're social creatures. We need that physical contact. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, I, I appreciate a firm, stiff handshake. It feels like a, a good greeting. Like I'm just sort of getting to know you that way. So it's like, I, I do know that a lot of people just hate handshakes. Well, you, but you, you know read what I mean? It, you, yeah. Some people don't like them. Um, but, but you, you read into, I think a little bit and you read into a handshake with someone. Like if somebody has a really firm, strong handshake, you, I think you attribute things like assertiveness to them early in. Whereas if somebody has kind of that wet flimsy wet the fish, dead fish the dead fish handshake yeah. you kind of you kind of go mm, like like if if you were walking into a boardroom and someone said here's our ceo and and the ceo reached out and was like bwomp bwomp you'd kind of you you might be like i'm not i i have had a ceo give me a dead fish before you had too. specifically a ceo I, give yeah you a and, dead- and 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 of course i'm not going to name any names but i i, oh, I, I do remember should, meeting a ceo people, at some point people and, are going to get onto their iTrade accounts right now so they can sell <laughs> sell they want to they want to find out what company it is that has the ceo with the wet fish handshake anyway the point is all of this to say uh, and we and we now have her worship uh, mayor Karen Sorensen she's on standby. She's enjoying the handshake so she, conversation. Well, she's she's probably wondering. She's probably thinking if Jesperson didn't make the introduction to our conversation eleven minutes, we could have a longer conversation. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. The point of talking about the hockey games and the movie theaters and the rock concerts and the supermarkets and the handshakes and the hugs 
is to talk about, to envision, to dream about. Yes, I am lustily dreaming. That's a weird hashtag. Lustily dreaming of a return to normal. And, and, I, and I wonder if her worship is too, because for Banff, a return to normal has, has big implications. Still in the show, still to come, dragon and legendary entrepreneur Arlene Dickinson will join us. And Guy Felicella, he, he's, a, he's a TED talker. Uh, he's a remarkable guy. As he says at the introduction, the very beginning of one of his TED talks, he says, I have died and been brought back to life six times. And then he just lets that resonate like I'm trying to do. He's died and been brought back to life six times. And now he's he's not in a bad way, in a good way. Lecture can be a good thing. He's lecturing us. He's teaching us Canadians and people around the world through the reach of his digital media efforts and his other efforts about the opioid crisis. He's talking about uh, drug use issues and addiction issues and supports and most importantly, harm reduction. Guy Felicella saw what this show was doing a couple of weeks ago. He saw some of the people we were talking to. He saw what we were covering here on Real Talk. He reached out to us. These are the most meaningful connections. And he said, I've, he said, I've got some, some focus I'd like to have on, right now on Alberta, what's happening in Western Canada. I mean, BC and Alberta are getting... Oh, man, I'm going to say it because it is. We're getting killed. It is it is killing. I mean, I mean it's, it's unbelievable. And, and Guy, on, I know, will paint a picture. He says, you know, the opioid crisis across Canada, he said it's like the number of people that are dying. It's like a Boeing 737 is going down every two weeks. Like, and, and the numbers are actually probably tragically up since then. So we need to cover that. Listen, we got to get the conversation started here because we've got a great show in store. I want to remind you that our conversations, this show, each and every day that we're on the air is presented by our title sponsor, Bitcoin Well. It's going to be a big 2021 for Bitcoin Well. And, and hey, I'm not, you can't hold me to this. Don't ever take investment advice from me. This is just me and my powers of observation. It looks to me trend-wise. I'm just saying, based on what I'm seeing, that it looks like 2021 might be a big year for Bitcoin, too. I'm just saying, if that's a game you want to get in on, or maybe you already know you know, a lot about Bitcoin, but you want to chat it out with the experts, the Canadian company based out of Edmonton is Bitcoin Well. They're going public this year, too. It's going to be a big year for them. They're moving locations. They've just hired, I mean, geez, they've quadrupled their workforce. It's a crazy story. Adam O'Brien, the CEO of Bitcoin Well. He'll be coming up again in the next month or so on the show, and we'll look forward to that. Sam, let's rock and roll. Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I love this from Brenda. Brenda's chiming in on our live chat on YouTube. Uh, by the way, this morning, I don't know if you saw, we finally we crossed the bridge. Uh, 4,000 plus YouTube subscribers, which is which is awesome. Woo-hoo! Yeah, I know. That's that's pretty exciting stuff. So, so of all, you know, we have people joining us, people streaming live right now on Mixler and then and then the kind of the lion's share is our podcast subscribers, but this YouTube audience continues to grow, which is exciting uh, for Sam and I. And we appreciate everybody that subscribes, that rings that bell and that tunes in live every morning to hear interviews like this. Let's get right to it. She is the mayor of of probably I'm going to say maybe the coolest place in the world to, to be mayor. Uh, Banff, Alberta. Karen Sorensen, your worship. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I don't know where I'd probably rather be mayor than Banff, Alberta, to be honest with you. It is an excellent place to live, and it is an excellent place to be the mayor. It, it really is a huge privilege. Of course, we're a small community. We normally have about a population of about 9,000, but uh, we've have over 4 million visitors come every year and uh it is an extraordinary and truly unique 
municipality within Canada. Yeah, and and I would imagine uh, to state the obvious, that means uh, different things for entrepreneurs. It means different things for you know business owners, employers, uh, and and then for elected officials. That I mean, you've got to develop and and carry out policy based on not just what works for your residents, but what works for visitors as well. And and the the powers of prognostication you've got to have, I would imagine, would be significant. Four million visitors a year on average. What about 2020? Are we talking 10% of that? Uh, it wasn't uh, as bad, you know, to your point, you're correct. We wor- we work with both levels of government, or, well, three levels of government, municipal. I obviously work with the provincial government, but we work with the federal government all the time. We sit in Banff National Park, uh, which uh, again, only Jasper and Banff are the municipalities that sit in a national park. And so Minister of Environment and Climate Change is uh, really our go-to department uh, federally. So when it comes to businesses wanting to open or um, how we build our infrastructure or even what kind of sign you want to put out in front of your business. It is all very strictly regulated and everything is viewed from the angle of an environmental lens. So it is really interesting and I enjoy every minute of it. Um, As far as 2020 goes, when we all realized what was happening in March, uh, it was devastating. Uh, Of course, conversations were happening very quickly. Projections were being made. We were watching uh, everything fall apart. Again, as a municipality in a national park, we serve one purpose, and that is a, a, a site for visitors to welcome visitors. That That is our role. That is why we are allowed to have a municipality in a national park, is a service center for visitors. And, of course, a home for the people who live here who serve those visitors. So when tourism takes that kind of hit, it is our, frankly, entire economy. Yeah. And I certainly understand that lots of economies have been um, devastated by this. Tourism is definitely one of them, and that is our only economy. Is it, but there's got to be, um, I would imagine something different in the sense that, you know, you've got to ride out the storm, uh, which for a lot of folks, I mean, we won't, uh, ignore the fact that, you know, we've, we've talked to some experts, uh, you know, that have suggested that 25 to 30% of Canada's restaurants could close. I don't know what, what the local numbers might look like if you might have insight there, but it's different than, um, I'm trying to think of an example of something. If people didn't feel safe somewhere, for example, there had been a I don't know, heaven forbid, I don't know why this is coming to my mind. Maybe I'm thinking of, you know, some of the stories in 2020 in the United States, but like a, a series of mass shootings or something where people go, I don't know if I, it's, I can't forecast what's going to happen. I'm not sure I feel safe. Something like this, where I think it's very evident that people are eager to get back to normal, where it's something like you got to get through a pandemic. And, and then, I mean, are you just bracing for an influx or do you think that there's going to have to be a, a confidence building exercise to draw people back to Banff? I'd be more inclined to think the former than the latter. So that's a big question. There's lots of answers going in different directions. Uh, First and foremost, safety was our number one priority and all of town council was in agreement on that. Some, uh, you know, feedback often is, well, if we have to close or if we put check stops up and ask why people are coming to town as we were doing in the spring, you know, that impacts the economy even more. But our number one priority and continues to be is community safety for our residents and for our visitors. And what happened because of that and a number of things that we put in place, we became known as a safe destination during the pandemic. And while we were projecting a summer of 10, 20% occupancy uh, in the community, we actually saw the municipality measures vehicular traffic. So we actually saw 70 to 75% of vehicular traffic 
in summer 2020 that we would have seen compared to 2019 as an example. I want to make it clear that does not mean that our hotels were operating at 70 or 75%. Our retailers were not experiencing, uh, you know, 70, 75% of their revenues, but people were coming. And, and by people, uh, I really mean uh, Canadians, particularly Albertans and people from British Columbia, but you know, a lot of people got in their cars and did the great Canadian drive uh, and ended up uh, in Banff. And that was a good thing. Um, with this second, the other thing, Banff was able to maintain a very low case count, sort of over the summer, I think the max number of cases was around 20. But with this second wave, we got hit and we got hit hard. Uh, at one point, we had a no- 191 cases was our top number. I should mention too, that's Banff Lake Louise in our region, but a predominantly the the town of Banff. That was the highest Um, per capita number, though, in Alberta. That must have been for you with with somewhat limited hospital resources as well. That that must have been a bit of a, a rattling circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. It's not something we're proud of. Uh, I guess we're not surprised. We were, I would say, very blessed through the summer and through the early stages of the pandemic. And not shockingly, we ended up with a spike. Uh, And it is very concerning. The reason we were the highest per capita, again, going back to our population. So um, in our region, I think they consider us at about 13,000 people. So when you have 191 cases per 13,000 people, then that makes your your uh, per capita number uh, very, very high. Um, I think I sort of missed the point of your last question in terms of what what's going to happen now. Um, no, I don't, th- I don't think I, you missed I, the point, but I'm just curious. Like, I don't I don't think um, I mean, I know that there's a lot of, uh, of of investment in advertising in tourism. That's really important. And, and a lot of the ad campaigns are, are halfway around the world drawing in international visitors. But I'm just curious to know if you think that you'll have to to reinstill trust and confidence in visitors to come to Banff. I suspect that's not the case. My, my guess is that people <laughs> I guess what I'm doing is speaking from my own perspective, Mayor, where I just can't wait to get back. But but of course, we're waiting on things like a vaccine that might give us confidence. How do you how do you approach that as mayor? Yeah, so I think the other interesting part of this is the province is suggesting that perhaps you shouldn't be traveling too far or unnecessarily. Yeah. But in the same breath, people are looking for places where they can feel safe in a national park with your family, being able to be out on a hike and appropriately social distance is a real draw as is snowshoeing and cross country skiing and getting out in your fat bike. And of course, the other thing is our ski areas have stayed open and, um, you know, there's some balance there as to whether that's the right call or the bad call or not the right call. But at this point, the ski hills are open and they're busy. So I think people are really drawn to what we offer here in Banff and in Banff National Park. Uh, although, on the other hand, <clears throat> uh, Banff Lake Louise Tourism has really stopped all promotion at this point uh, into the first quarter of 2021. We are anxious and have and looking forward to welcoming the world back. More than 50% of our uh, visitation usually comes from outside of Canada. So uh, the vaccine and feeling safe to travel uh, will play a big part in this. But as far as being a destination where people uh, want to come, are drawn to come to because of the wide open spaces, and I agree with you, feel safe is, um, is, is probable. Uh, Mayor, you've announced that you will not be seeking re-election in in the 2021 uh, the Alberta municipal elections, which which means I suppose it's a it's a wide open race 
in Banff. It, it's always interesting, I think. I, uh, in particular, I think politicians, uh, some of them the most interesting ones to watch are the ones with like a year left in their mandate, a year or less, because really you've got nothing to lose. Uh, and, and right now, politicians don't typically use the word themselves, use the word legacy. But right now, I would imagine that there are probably some legacy projects. Let's call them priorities in front of you between now and October. What are they? Well, thank you for asking. I will have served in October of 2021. I'll have served 17 years. I sat for two terms as a councillor and I'm now in my third term as mayor. And of course, in Alberta, we had a year change. We were three year terms. And then for the last two terms, we've been four year terms. So I have decided. And in fact, it didn't just decide when I ran in uh, fall of 2017. I said at that time, this would my third term as mayor would be my final term. Um, but I'll tell you, this will not be easy to walk away from. Uh, I'm so proud of so many things that we have done and you make a great point, Ryan, it's knowing what's happening in the next year or two. And I want to drive it forward. And frankly, things take time and I can't, and I probably won't be able to achieve um, the future things that I would like to see get done. However, I feel very comfortable and confident in what my goals were this term. And uh, there is probably Nothing I am more proud of as, as having sat for this many years than Rome Transit, which is our transit system. We're a very small community. Uh, we operated in Banff and then we started a service between Banff and Canmore and now Canmore has Rome Transit and now we're out into the park and we're really making uh, great headway in getting people out of personal vehicles and experiencing Banff and the Bow Valley and the National Park with an alternate form of transportation. So proud of Rome Transit. Uh, our other big issue forever in Banff has been housing and cost of living. And um, really delighted to see, we for three years had a 0% vacancy for rentals. And although now it's all wacky, I don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, but we did see our vacancy rate come up and most proudly built um, an undermarket market uh, rental facility, um, 132 units, TINU, with the help of the federal and the provincial government. And so delighted to get that in place. And just getting going on a um, under market value housing to, for purchase. So people will in fact be able to purchase a condo style uh, living accommodation in trying to get more people to be able to actually purchase a home in Banff, which I is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I thought I thought actually you weren't allowed to do that. How does that how does that work? If I want to buy a condo in Banff, what do I have to do? I have to live there? Oh, thanks for the clarity. No, no, for our residents. Yeah, yeah. So how <laughs> does that work? Our, how does our, that work though? Yeah. Like if I re if I um, retire and move to Banff, can I buy a house there? You can buy a house, you can't live in it. <laughs> so, so uh, it's actually a, a federal uh, regulation yeah. uh, for a municipality and national park. Um, I always forget the formal term for it. We call it need to reside. And so it is a, a rule in the national park that in order to be able to live here, you need to be working in the national park. And then if you have worked here for a period of time, I believe it's five years, oh, wow. um, then you can retire here. But that is why we continue to be so unique compared to Whistler or even a community like Canmore. You know, we don't have timeshare. We don't allow Airbnbs. And that is not what our housing is for. Our housing is for 
people who are required to live here in order to serve the national park. Is it, are you, uh, I, I'm going to phrase this weird, uh, but I'm going to say, are you able to get politically, are you able to get away with, because if Mayor Iveson or Mayor Nenshi or, or Mayor Stewart in Vancouver or, or Mayor Tory in Toronto tried to say no Airbnbs, they would have pitchforks and torches at City Hall. Uh, are you able to get away with that politically just because there's like literally zero vacancy? Like, Absolutely. What are you going to do? Because right? that is, yeah, well, it's because that's not what our houses are for. Again, it sort of comes back to that need to reside and not doing nightly rentals in a residential area. We have the authority uh, really through the federal government to say no, and we come down on them. I, I mean, we have a team that watches Airbnb and, and VRBO and et cetera. And um, yeah, they get, they get fined if, if we find that people are trying yeah. to rent their personal homes out. Have you doled out any fines? Has that actually ever happened? Oh, I believe so. I yeah. mean, it's not what I would do. No, not you. <laughs> but, <laughs> Mayor Sorensen out with the, hey, with the, the, the tickets, the ticket pad. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you yeah. this. I know you know what? We... We've done a really good job. I think there was one year specifically that we aggressively went out and enforced. And I believe that since then, things have improved dramatically. Uh, Mayor, I know that uh, or I don't know. I assume that this was a a covid related precaution, um, shutting down Banff Avenue to vehicular traffic, Mm. opening it up to pedestrians, giving people a little more room to roam. But there are multiple audience members this morning saying that they would love to see uh, Sylvan Lake kind of did this a little bit um, Mm -hmm. with, with Lakeshore Drive there. But but what about making that more permanent? Is that something that I mean, again, you you know, this would be maybe something a vision for a future council. But is this something being discussed in council chambers? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Pedestrianizing the downtown core of Banff has always been discussed. Uh, One of the biggest challenges we have is because we're on a set footprint and we have limited road space and we have a lot of vehicles. uh, It doesn't always work. And Banff Avenue being our main thoroughfare um, can be very challenging. It was, I believe, a great success last summer. You're right. We did it for safety purposes so people could social distance and allow then, in fact, our businesses to operate a little bit more extensively because we we don't allow businesses out on our public spaces. But last year we did. So we're already in the throes of looking at a plan for 2021 because we do not believe that we will be through this in summer 2020. 2021, at least in the term you use of normalcy. Uh, We believe people are still going to want a mask. They're still going to want a social distance. So we are creating a plan. Uh, In terms of this being a permanent um, opportunity, I think we will continue to look at it. As I said, from my perspective, my personal perspective, if we can get people to park somewhere else and get out of their vehicles, then it's a perfect downtown core um, for pedestrianization. But having people drive around in circles looking for a parking spot with their personal vehicle uh, really uh, hinders that. And I should add too, one of the reasons it was successful last summer for those listening and watching, there was no motor coaches. Mm. There was no, there was no tour buses here. <laughs> and I'll tell you, we got a lot of tour buses. And when you're filing those tour buses onto the res- residential streets, of, excuse me, that run perpendicular um, or parallel, um, then um, yeah, it's a, it, it causes angst yeah. oh is that right is people that live there don't love having tour buses roll past their driveway every 30 <laughs> that's interesting uh <laughs> mayor let me i i'm just i'm i want to go off on a tangent here talking about the i i wander around banff and i i grew up in banff i mean not actually literally but i grew up in calgary <laughs> well we, then you can live here <laughs> well yeah i was yeah i'm always trying to find loopholes on how i can buy property in banff i mean and then there's also the fact that everything would be like two million bucks but but um but i just my point is like we would be in banff all the time and i feel very 
at home in Banff and and um, and I love the history there and the history of like the Brewster's company and this that and the other but we don't have time to get into it but obviously tourism has been hugely important for well over a century there um, let me let me ask you about two priorities that I know you've had just in doing some reading and preparing for this interview um, obviously uh, there are environmental issues to be considered in Banff all the time and we're going to be talking to some experts uh, over the next couple of days now I'll acknowledge this is not in your backyard but some of the the coal mining the strip mining that's happening in Alberta right now in the Rocky Mountains I think people are looking for facts on on what that actually means what the actual implications are but people are talking about the finding the balance of an energy economy and environmentalism and then I think also Albertans are turning on to and, and I hope that this is true and accurate the age of uh, reconciliation what does that actually mean I mean we we talked to Adam North Pagan from the 60s Scoop Society I think it was last week maybe two weeks ago on the show and and marked the five-year anniversary of, of the release of those recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and and, and we tried to evaluate it fairly and say, what have we actually accomplished? And, and, and I don't want to say absolutely nothing, but closer to nothing than everything um, on the environment and indigenous relations front. What will your final year in office as the mayor of Banff look like? Uh, so thank you uh, for that. I just wanted to touch on the fact that as an Albertan, you feel that you grew up in Banff and, and we, we know that we completely understand that Albertans feel that Banff is their town. Really a lot of Canadians feel that Banff is their town and we feel the same. We love our Albertan neighbors and you should feel uh, that this is your community as well. So thank you for that um, comment. Um, with COVID, we, so town council in Banff always creates a four-year strategic plan, which leads into the next council. So our strategic plan will go into 2022 at this point. And of course, with COVID, uh, some big breaks got put on a lot of our strategic thinking and our, and our planning. Um, on the Indigenous front, um, really our goal this term was to increase our dialogue with our Indigenous neighbours. Uh, Stony Nation is just to our east uh, with, um, the, with Canmore and, and the extension of Bow Valley uh, between us. Um, I personally was having lots of conversations, um, not only with Stony, but also with Siksika and a few other nations who often will come to Banff for their conferences, etc., and really trying at a political level to understand how we can move forward on some of the reconciliation outcomes, um, which is a goal of the town of Banff. And we actually have administration working on a plan uh, for the town of Banff to be much more proactive. Sadly, to your point, COVID has put a stop on a lot of things that included and you know, I think the best I can do in these next few months is make sure that I maintain those relationships, um, that we come together. Um, of course, our Indigenous neighbours really um, communicate best in an opportunity to storytell and to uh, meet face to face. And we have to try and figure out a way to continue to do that. I did have a meeting not so long ago. We were in a, I think there was about 13 of us. We were in a great big ballroom at one of the local hotels. We were all masked and we were able to have um, um, a conversation. I also have to say, just because your listeners, big shout out to U of A on their Indigenous course. I don't yeah. know if you've anybody talk about that course. Yeah. I'm on module 11. Honestly, Albertans, it is such an education. And I grew up in an era, you know, where I thought some of our founding fathers were heroes. And um, it's 
I just want, I think that's the best thing any Albertan can do right now is take that course. Let me, it's funny, Mayor, I'm still shaking off the shackles of a traditional broadcasting career where right now I'm going to be honest, I have a, the tiniest little bit of anxiety because it's nine o'clock just ticking to nine one, and I'm going, <laughs> and I'm going, I have, I have commercial spots to read and I have a news update. And then I also go, we can do whatever the hell we want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the news happens at 9.07 or 9.08. Now, I'll acknowledge you probably have a busy day, and we got to let you go, and Arlene Dickinson's going to be joining us soon. Arlene's ready to go. Okay, so so I'll make this the last question, but and it's going to be somewhat not ambiguous, but, but open-ended because you've just touched on it. We've had conversations around, you know, taking down statues of, of Sir John A. Macdonald or renaming schools or, I mean, all of these. I don't have to te- spend minutes teeing it up. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Now, in Banff, there are some very, whether whether it's renaming mountain peaks, whether it's uh, how we tell our stories and history, how is, uh, and we'll use this opportunity to wrap here. We'll leave on this note. W- what are you seeing happen in Banff? And, and hey, let's be honest, let's have an uncomfortable moment here what needs to happen that's not happening right now what makes you uncomfortable as mayor in your own community uh just quickly and it is mostly naming i will say in banff and banff national park and i'm trying to move quickly here it's mostly geographical you don't have to move and quickly just take your time to answer okay. it's, it's all good it's all good <laughs> and if it's and if and often it, it falls outside the town of banff it's actually a parks canada uh decision and conversation so people who are advocating uh for say um uh, you know, one of the most popular ones here is Tunnel Mountain. Uh, there was supposed to be a tunnel built through Tunnel Mountain. There was never a tunnel in Tunnel Mountain, and the original name was Sleeping Buffalo. And so lots of people are engaged in, for instance, that name change. Not that Tunnel Mountain is necessarily offensive, but going back to uh, what the original uh, name was intended to be. And again, not only does that fall in the Parks Canada realm, actually, what I've learned uh, with a, in a conversation with the superintendent is um, there's a naming committee in Ottawa for Canada's geographical places and it has to go through quite quite a process um there was another mountain in banff national park with a very offensive name and my understanding is that it's been changed um it just isn't um at this point on a lot of the mapping and and stuff that you can buy you know they obviously have or or get a map of banff national park it hasn't always been changed but i would say within our community but certainly within the national park it's predominantly um geographical and and that is and and to your point exactly mountain names and and that is really all i've seen here specifically uh mayor karen Sorensen, we're grateful that you've made time to speak with us uh, this morning from from paradise from the, from the mayor's <laughs> office in beautiful banff alberta canada um wishing you all the best uh, a very happy new year and of course we'll look forward to see where you apply your your experience and your skills and abilities um post political career uh, thanks for making time for us Thanks, Ryan. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Happy to come back anytime. My best, Arlene. Uh, sometimes we tweet back and forth, and oh, um, I'm I'm going to listen in. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. I always love doing this when there's guest crossover. Do you have Do you have a question you'd like me to ask Arlene? We'll make it the first question. Uh, too too much off the top of my head. I'm sorry, I can't come up with one. But <laughs> okay. uh, just, I'll it. tell you, just say the mayor of Banff sends her best. <laughs> oh, I sure will. I have about 300 questions <laughs> for us, so we're all good. Thanks, Mayor. That's <laughs> okay, good. That, that's her Thanks. worship, uh, Mayor Karen Sorensen of, of Banff, Alberta. As mentioned, Arlene Dickinson coming up in, in like one minute. We're going to do this quickly. Just wanted to remind you how grateful we are to have the support. Hey, if you're hitting the highway, if you're if you're going to be uh, en route to a destination, uh, you know, all things considered, of course, we know that, that plans have been scaled down for everybody. 
everybody, but it, but it doesn't mean that that safety isn't your top concern on the highway. The brand that everybody trusts when it comes to safe highway travel these days, when it comes to capability on the highway, on roads, heck, on your way to the supermarket and back, considering some of the storms that we see, is Jeep. And the Jeep dealer that people trust here in Alberta, where we're broadcasting from, it's a pair owned by Scott Heldon and his team, St. Albert Dodge and Sherwood Dodge, with Alberta's best Jeep selection. The sales and service fronts both recognized in the Metro Edmonton and Capital Region as Alberta's best. So if you're thinking Jeep for 2021, if it's time to trade in that old ride, if you just don't have the confidence your car is going to start for you every morning, look to St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. We're also grateful for the partnership of Alta Moving and Storage. For some of you, whether it's a a New Year's resolution or maybe just a reality check post-pandemic, you know you've got to be changing up your routine, routine and that might involve a move. If so, the way that everybody's doing it now, the convenient way to do it is with these pod style containers. You give them a call at Alta Moving and Storage. You find their details under the contact link, the sponsors link, that is, at ryanjesperson.com. They'll drop off that pod style container. You want to load it up yourself? Cool. You got your own boxes? Fine. You want the eco-friendly frog boxes? They've got them. You want movers? They've got them too. Plus, short and long-term storage, all locally owned. Check out Alta Moving and Storage. I'll tell you what, we've been looking forward to this conversation with Arlene Dickinson uh, forever. And so with apologies to those that may be tuning in to get news headlines, we'll do those at the bottom of the clock. We'll do it at 930 because I don't want to leave her sitting here. I'm, I'm looking forward to this I'm conversation. I'm just troubleshooting her video right now. Troubleshooting gonna, videos. Yep. Okay, well, okay, I'll so tell what you what. Are we, why don't we run some why headlines? Don't we? Can you, does, is it cool for you to, we'll run the headlines right now, Sam. And are you able to th- show me that COVID-19 board? This is good. Sam Brooks just killing it behind the scenes, everybody. Doing a great job. Arlene Dickinson coming up uh, in just one moment. Uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw with an update yesterday. Uh, We saw COVID-19 deaths in Alberta, uh, over a 1,000 for the first time we've seen it uh, following the Christmas break. And so uh, there you have it. Those are the numbers that are tough. Uh, pills to swallow, certainly, as Alberta continues to weather this storm. Uh, the reality across Canada, uh, the number one priority now is to get people vaccinated. We know that about 4,000 additional vaccines on their way to Alberta. We're still at the stage where it's healthcare and frontline workers and our most vulnerable citizens that are receiving those inoculations first. And of course, we're going to keep you posted as that story changes. Uh, a new poll out this morning from Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies found that 30% of uh, respondents in Alberta, there were about 3,800 respondents across the country. 30% of Albertans satisfied uh, with the job that Premier Jason Kenney is doing when it comes to COVID-19. That's the lowest level of satisfaction for Canada's uh, 10 provincial leaders. Manitoba's Premier Brian Pallister, who's also uh, been really struggling in the polls. Uh, Manitoba has certainly seen um, that that wave of new infections. That was a story that we were covering a few weeks ago. Fared uh, slightly better, Premier Pallister did, than uh, Kenny with 31% of Manitobans approving of his management. The only other premier with less than 50% satisfaction was Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe at 39%. So a, a tough uh, tough polling here for Alberta's prairie premiers in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Just over half of respondents in Ontario approved of the job that Premier Doug Ford was doing. I wonder if that's because he let whole big groups of people get together for Christmas. I don't know. We'll see what the numbers look like in a couple of weeks. In Quebec, Premier Legault, 55% approval. In BC, Premier John Horgan is getting a thumbs up from almost 60% of respondents, 59%. And then at the Atlantic provinces, I mean, Nova Scotia's Premier Stephen McNeil on top of 78% 
of locals approving of his management of the pandemic. You see these sort of pandemic bumps in the polls. If the numbers are okay, if people perceive that it's kind of a steady eddy approach from the premier's office, the Ministry of Health premiers typically have been polling pretty well through this pandemic. It's when things start to go sideways that we see those numbers start to drop. All right, let's get to it. She is, uh, if not, uh, no, we're still working on getting Arlene Dickinson ready. That's no problem there. Sam, can, can we pull up Dr. Dina Hinshaw's availability yesterday? I wanted to put this in front of you, uh, Real Talkers. This this was really an interesting um, a moment, I think, yesterday in Dr. Dina Hinshaw's address to Albertans. This was an update, and of course, there had been a bit of a pause, understandably so, through the Christmas break. And so this was the first that we were hearing from Dr. Dina Hinshaw in, in a while, and she's not one uh, to get political. Many of you I, have been written into the show. We get a lot of emails at talk at RyanJesperson.com saying, you know who you should talk to? You know who you should get an interview with is Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Well, yeah, uh, but she's not doing individual sit downs. She does her availability. She stays out of the political muck and mire as best she can, though. I suspect there's a lot of politicking that happens when you're the chief medical officer of health through a pandemic. But this raised my eyebrows just a tiny little bit yesterday when she compared Alberta. She kind of just subtly slid it in, comparing Alberta's rates to some of the other provinces. When I see stuff like that, I always kind of wonder why. Like, what's the motivation? Like, what's what's the reasoning behind something like this? Let's take a look. We are not alone in this reality in Alberta either. Around the world and across our country, people are mourning the loss of their loved ones. The death rate in Quebec is 95 per 100,000. Ontario's is 30 per 100,000. Manitoba's 47, BC 16, and Alberta's is 20 per 100,000. Each of these numbers represents people whose loss leaves a hole behind in their families, communities, and groups of friends. So that was kind of interesting uh, yesterday. That was yesterday uh, late afternoon, hearing Dr. Hinshaw compare some of the provinces and, and the rates. No, it's 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 fact. And uh, this is scientific data uh, based on what they have. And, and the numbers are maybe a little bit a little off right now uh, because of the, the, the lag in testing through the Christmas holidays, et cetera. But that was something that jumped out at me. And I'd be curious to know what you think. You can, of course, hit us up on our hashtag RealTalkRJ at any time uh, on Twitter. That's the best way to communicate with us live. Or, of course, on our Twitter stream, our, our, our live chat, rather, stream uh, that happens on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Um, Chad says, I'm, a, I'm actually a little irked by the lack of reporting over the holidays. The virus isn't pausing. Uh, and now is the time to be in front of people making decisions to gather. Well, Dr. Hinshaw touched on this. Uh, this was uh, on Monday afternoon. Let's let's get to this where she, she talks about the new variant and she talks about travel. And, and well, she basically takes it on. Here she is. We are watching closely, uh, of course, across the country. We're having conversations with colleagues in all of the other provinces and territories to make sure that we each are informed about what we're seeing and that we're taking a, a collaborative and coordinated approach to this. What we know right now is there is some evidence that this variant may be more infectious than other strains of the virus. And as a precaution, we're therefore making sure that uh, we're reducing the chance that we could get importation of many of these strains. One of the things that we have done, as you likely know, is we've recommended that anyone who has been in the UK, and as again, as you likely know, uh, there's been identification of a, a different variant, but one that has a similar mutation in South Africa recently. And so we are recommending that anyone who has been in the UK or in South Africa in the last 14 days 
should get a test. And in fact, we've worked with the federal government to get a list of all of those who've been in those places. And Alberta Health Services will be calling all of those individuals to offer them a test if they consent, then they'll uh, be helped to book that test just to make sure that we're able to pick up if a variant does come in. We've also made sure that uh, when people are coming in that we are communicating to them if they otherwise would have wanted to participate in our border pilot. Unfortunately that is not possible if they've been in the UK or in South Africa over the last 14 days. Again because we want to take a cautious approach to this particular variant. Okay, so that was Dr. Dina Hinshaw yesterday talking about this this new variant, as they're calling it. And and we want to uh, take all of this with sort of, I think, a measured approach. Now, I am not the chief medical officer of health. I am not an immunologist nor a virologist. I'm not a microbiologist or any of the other uh, long list of esteemed careers that would be in a position to, to uh, confidently speak on a matter like this. However, I will simply point out that what we've heard from expert guests indicates that they have confidence uh, in these new vaccines, the, the, the Pfizer, BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines, that they are still scientifically applicable with this so-called new strain of the virus. It is rumored to be more contagious than the previous COVID-19, but the experts that we've been hearing from, including here live on the show, have been saying it's not unusual for a virus like this to mutate. It's, it's, it's not something that we didn't expect, and it's, uh, of course, as best you can prepare for this. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, we believe that we are prepared for this, say those that are uh, certainly encouraging people to get that vaccine. Appreciate hearing from Ken. Uh, Ken is watching the show here live. I've uh, read some of those uh, approval numbers when it comes to the premiers and 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 Ken, Ken made a comment here that said, you know, I mean, basically, you know, it's ridiculous and not surprising to see the Alberta government, Premier Jason Kenney in particular, polling lower, the lowest of all the Canadian premiers. He said it's ridiculous that this government hasn't accessed all the federal funds available for frontline workers. This was a story that uh, broke in the, in the uh, Globe and Mail just the other day, uh, and it's one that certainly I think is raised some eyebrows, the Globe and Mail reporting that Alberta requested far less uh, in federal wage top ups for essential workers than the province was eligible for. Uh, Alberta had at its disposal approximately three hundred and fifty million dollars available from the federal government. And this money, the three hundred and fifty million or so, uh, was earmarked for topping up the wages, typically the lower wages of a lot of the frontline essential workers. So we're talking about you know, congregate care, including long-term care centers, uh, security guards, uh, housekeeping staff, laundry staff, people that we we might not, yeah, I mean, let's be honest, uh, real talk for a second here, people whose, whose contributions uh, might sometimes be overlooked and not always celebrated. When people like me with microphones are, are saying, let's let's be thank and I and I mean this sincerely, but, you know, let's be thankful for our police and our firefighters and our paramedics uh, and, and, and the members of our military, you know, and, and, and then everyone will say, well, yeah, but like, you know, my cousin or my auntie or my sister or, or my husband are, are, you know, they're making like 16 bucks an hour or 15 bucks an hour, uh, you know, making sure that that bedpans are changed or 22 bucks an hour, you know, putting themselves in harm's way, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the front waiting area of, of the you know, ER admitting air, you know, these types of folks that are that are just as at risk, that are just as essential to the process, but but aren't exactly cashing in. You know what I'm saying? This was money, federal money earmarked for topping up those wages. But here's the thing. The provincial government had to cover a quarter of those wages. So in other words, Ottawa would contribute three to one. 
And the Alberta government, we have to assume, made the decision that it didn't want to pony up for that. And so Alberta left approximately $310, $315 million on the table of federal funds available. Uh, $30 million was requested and received from Alberta. That was right up to the threshold of of where Alberta had to start kicking in. Uh, $347 million allowable. So about $320 million left on the table. And when that story broke, when that information came out, I think a lot of people are are quite rightfully pissed, and I don't blame them. Uh, Let's put this conversation to a screeching halt because it sounds like Arlene Dickinson is ready to go. We're so grateful that she's made time for us this morning. She who requires no introduction, one of Canada's most celebrated entrepreneurs. Thank you for making time for us, Arlene, and welcome to Real Talk. Oh, thanks so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure. I'm sorry for all the technical difficulties. I don't know what was going on. No, you know what? Some, I was determined. <laughs> sometimes sometimes they're on our end and sometimes they're on other. And all we care about is that we get to have the conversations. May I just say, it looks like you are in a, in a, a, some sort of fabulous chalet right now. Where where are you checking in yeah. from? Um, I'm checking on uh, from my uh, my cottage up in actually in Ontario. So I'm not in Alberta right now. I wish I was. I, I mean, I love Ontario too, but um, I'm not in Alberta. And it's tons of snow here, like feet and feet of snow. It's beautiful. Yeah, it looks absolutely incredible. Well, certainly Canadians from coast to coast are, are relatively familiar with your story and, and certainly have, have have watched you on television and have, have followed, I think, your insights and your advice when it comes to to specifically uh, small business ownership, entrepreneurship and growing businesses uh, uh, in, in size and stature. It's safe to say, Arlene, that this past year has been just a kick in the teeth uh, for business owners, uh, I mean, regardless of the size of their businesses. What has, uh, to get personal, right out of the gates what has the pandemic done uh with, with regards to your own ventures and how have you weathered the storm so to speak well it's been really interesting ryan i mean um my fund district ventures capital is a fund that invests in the food and health space and consumer goods in that space and so you know a lot of the companies that we have supported uh with capital and and marketing services for the fund have actually done quite well through the pandemic because they're focused on health and, and wellness and, and food and beverages. And so for the most part, they've uh, been able to keep up with the demand of all the retailers. Um, uh, con- you know, on the other side of that coin, there's um, other businesses that I have that have not done as well, um, you know, that have really struggled to keep up with this and to find a way to manage through it. And, and um, I have to say that I think if it wasn't for the CERB, many of those businesses would have really struggled um, to be able to survive. So, you know, there's there's definitely a need for the government assistance that we've got. Um, and certainly in some cases, you know, these businesses have been able to wear a fair through it okay. Let me, I'll, I'll keep this question sort of as open-ended as possible because I don't want to kind of pigeonhole where you can take your answer, but it's it's always interesting for me in speaking with entrepreneurs. Um, the, the one common thread that I find, at least with the ones that I know, the ones that I would call friends is that they, for the most part, like to see the government get out of the way. That That's kind of the general uh, approach that they've taken to business and government involvement. But this year has obviously been so different where we're talking about things like wage supports, emergency response benefits, loans, some interest-free loans, et cetera. How would you evaluate what your expectations would be of government? We can talk provincial and federal, wherever you like. Uh, and then what would you think an astute plan would look like moving forward, a post-pandemic plan? I mean, there's all kinds of opinions on on how extreme that needs to be with regards to a reinvention. Yeah, listen, I, I think um, I think it's critical right now that the government is supporting uh, businesses and people the way it is. In fact, 
um, I would say that probably more support is needed than is being uh, given. And and while I'm very cognizant of the debt um, implica- implication of that, um, I don't believe that we can negate the the impact that this pandemic has had on entrepreneurs and small business in general, and on what I would call you know our innovation economy, the idea that we have a nation that is founded on supporting and encouraging and growing entrepreneurialism and small business, because it is, you know, we say all the time, it's the backbone of our country. And yet, you know, these small businesses right now are shut down. So if we're going to shut these businesses down, which, you know, that's a whole other discussion, if they are going to be shut down, then they have to be supported. Um, Now, having said that, I, I do want to just take a second and say that, you know, these small businesses that are shut down um, at, at the, at, well, big businesses are remaining open who sell the same goods, I think is uh, really problematic. I think there needed to be a better way to deal with um, the, uh, the quarantining, the shutting down, the managing of that. Um, there's no reason why small business couldn't have also implemented all sorts of safety precautions and safety measures um, at this, you know, and what I see now happening, I, I'm, I'm kind of adding to your question a little bit, Ryan, That's but great. I think they're really connected. Um, you know, you can't you can't say to big business, you stay open because you're essential and then say to small business, you shut down because you're not and then have them selling the exact same goods. So there there is a real issue there that I think has to be addressed. Um, but I do want to come back to if we 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 have to be cautious, we have to be prudent, we have to be careful through this pandemic. Obviously, I mean, I'm I'm of the I'm certainly on the side of wear masks. Don't you know? Don't don't you know? Uh, be careful and all the things that the um, health uh, officials are telling us to do. I am also very aware of the impact the pandemic's having on small business. So, do I think government should support? Yes, I do think government should support. Do I think it's doing enough? No, I don't think there's enough happening yet. I think we've got to think about the future. I think we've got to think about how these businesses are going to get back to their pre-pandemic revenue numbers. Yeah. I mean, right now they're just staying barely open or if at all, many of them, I think I heard 7,500 small businesses are going to shut down. So when you've got that number of businesses that are going to close because of the pandemic, then what you've got to do is figure out how you can get them not just to hibernate right now, but to be able to be successful post pandemic. So how are we going to help these businesses scale back up? I mean, we can't just, you know, snap our fingers and have the economy come back exactly the way it was. And that is my biggest concern right now. Yeah. And, and, and certainly uh, there's not a chance you're, you're, you're alone on that. We, we spoke prior to you, we were talking to the mayor of Banff, Karen Sorensen, who sends her warm greetings by the way she was excited yeah. to hear that you're on, on the same broadcast she <laughs> yeah. she said she'll be watching this interview um but we were talking to her worship about uh, about rebuilding Banff's economy and what that might look like and i don't know if Banff is i suspect Banff might be an advantageous position where um you know restaffing a lot of these ventures and and, and recruiting visitors and tourists to, to spend their money might be less of an effort because they i mean the place kind of sells itself not to suggest there's not work to be done but i Along with you and I'm sure thousands of others, and more concerned about you know the restaurants, uh, the small independent retailers, the clothing shops, the niche markets that I mean you know we take a look and maybe they got a break on their rent or maybe they were able to to kind of do what they could to adapt and we've seen really inspiring examples of that. But they're starting now. You know when we start talking about a recovery, we and, and Mayor Sorensen said she figures even in this summer to come there will still be people aware of distancing, still wearing masks. So consumer confidence, whatever that actually means you know could be a year away from now and i can't imagine for a lot of these small business owners and i'm not trying to be the dark rain cloud over them as they're watching and listening right now but i can't imagine what that feeling would be like hearing that oh you got to weather the storm for another year i mean 
I don't know how, how these folks are, are still going. How have you weathered? I mean, I know you've, I'm sure over the years you've seen a ton of adversity uh, in your career or in, in the careers of people that you've partnered with. Are there some principles that have, that have kept you focused and motivated and, and optimistic? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, I, the, 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 my last book, uh, Reinvention, focuses on some of the things that businesses and people can do to struggle through particularly challenging times in our lives and in, in our businesses. And so I talk a lot about thinking about um, what we've learned from the past, you know, bringing that forward, but not bringing all of the baggage with us, but bringing our lessons forward with us. I talk about figuring out what we're good at, you know, our currency. Um, I talk about thinking about our why, why do we get up every day and do what we do? And then I talk about the context of the world we're operating in and how you can actually think about what you're doing every day um, in the context of today's world. And I, I do want to say that a lot of that when I talk about how these businesses need to survive, I, I do believe that, of course, I mean, everyone's talking about the need to get digital and everybody's talking about the need to ensure that your e-commerce is working properly. And everyone's talking about the need to, you know, have curbside pickup, et cetera. And all of these things are really important. All of these things also take time and money and resources. And so another big gap that I am finding is that, you know, data, uh, big data in particular, that's usually held by large corporations and large industries is not being made accessible and available to small businesses to be able to compete on, you know, Google search and all of these things that are going on so that you can be online and have success. So it is complex. It, it requires um, determination, but I do believe that small businesses and small business owners and entrepreneurs are very innovative. They will find a way through this. Um, we have a lot of grit and determination. We are more flexible and more able to address these challenges in a different way, perhaps, than big business can because they have deeper pockets. But we have, I'd say, um, the ability to move quickly and swiftly and to be able to um I just think to be able to adapt a little more quickly than a big business can. I love this. Uh, Kim is watching us live on YouTube right now. She says, Arlene wouldn't know this. Uh, she says, but she was one of the first most influential women in my career. Kim says, uh, I only uh, was able to be in a room with her and watch her closely, but I experienced her strength and poise when I was a young woman getting started in advertising. Uh, she says, I'm so grateful for that. That's a pretty cool message. I would imagine to hear something like that. Oh, that's like, like that just made my day. Tell her thank you so much. Um, I listen, I, you know, we, we do the best we can. And even as I talk right now, I think, oh, I should say that differently or whatever. But you know, the, the, the real thing is to just um, be yourself and to show up, you know, as best you can each and every day. And right now in particular, I think it's very important that we all show up. Yeah, no kidding. I loved one of your tweets. I can't, I'm going to butcher it. I don't remember it exactly, but you said something like 2020 has been quite the century, uh, which kind of felt like <laughs> when I look back to January of 2020 as compared to now, it feels like I can't even believe all the stuff that's happened. It's been a hell of a year. Um, one of the things that 2020 marked was the, 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 the wrap. You've just wrapped season 15 of Dragon's yeah. Den on CBC, which is absolutely wild. What a journey. How, what have you seen? I, I mean, this is a kind of a big question, but, but with regards to how, how have pitches and business business models evolved in the 15 seasons that Dragon Den's been on the air. I mean, think of, of the so, so many things have transformed and changed. It's just been such a journey. I mean, I am so grateful for 
the opportunity I've had to be on that show and to have a front row seat to what's happened to entrepreneurialism in Canada. I mean, over those 15 years, it's become entrepreneurialism has become much more, um, I'd say revered and respected and um, admired. Um, and, and in some respects, what's happened is people have found courage from that show. I believe that it's given people a chance to really think about what they're capable of and, and to try. And, and I love that about the show. I mean, I love the, you know, tens of thousands of deals that I've seen in 15 years. It's just been, uh, honestly, Ryan, we, we are surrounded in Canada by such innovation and such, as I said, grit determination, but it's been phenomenal and and it has changed. Um, the, the businesses are bigger. The ideas are, are broader. The, um, you know, technology has certainly permeated everything. It's just been fascinating. So do you, uh, I mean, are you the type to make a new year's resolution? Is that something you've done or do you, do you hate that kind of stuff? I don't, you know, I've been, I, but I, I can tell you that the pandemic has made me certainly be much more aware and, cognizant of the things I can do as a human to try and support other people more than, you know, I, and I'd like to think I was always kind of aware, but maybe not enough. And I've really learned, you know, like we have to pay more attention to our neighbors and our community and to the things that are going on and to show kindness. And so I would say uh, I've learned a lot about myself this year. And so it doesn't take a day like New Year's Eve to make you contemplate. And we've been the one thing the pandemic has given us is the gift of time to consider who we are and what we want from our lives and what we want from our society and what we need from this world. And so it's not about a day, you guys. It's about every day. And it's about getting up and thinking about what do we want from this world? What are we going to accept? What are we going to um <clears throat> say is okay, you know, when we see things, what are we going to sit down and not talk about and not stand up for? I mean, the gone are the days of you can't talk about politics or religion or anything. You need to talk about all of those things. You need to, you need to talk about people that don't, you know, agree with you. And you need to talk to those people that don't agree with you. And so my new year's resolution, no, I don't do that, but I have really found more resolve this year than I think I've had in, in a long, long time. Yeah. That's beautifully said. I, uh, I think uh, for me personally, 2020 has been a total reset. Um, I, I I don't think that there's been an area of my life that's not been touched. Um, and it's really remarkable. And I don't think I'm even going to really re- realize some of the impacts, ex- you know, except for looking back with maybe the, the luxury of even more time and looking back maybe five years from now or 10 years from now and saying, wow, did that ever change in 2020 in that pandemic year? Um, let me ask you this in closing. We're so grateful for your time, Arlene, and it's just a, a real thrill to welcome you here to the show. Um, your name always pops up when people speculate about political leadership. And one oh, of, Ryan. And I know, but I have to. <laughs> I have to ask you because here's the thing. You're on a very short list, Arlene, of, uh, of, of, of potential politicians, of leaders that appeal to people on the left and the right. Some of my friends that are small C conservatives, some of them are small L liberals, and some of them have capital letters there too. Party members would love to see you get involved. Could you ever, could you ever find yourself in that type of situation? You know, I've learned, I've learned one thing in my life and that is to never say never. Mm. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, I, I'm so busy right now with, uh, building a fund and a platform that I think is so important to our nation. Um, I want to build a, a, a platform, a billion dollar platform that's going to help companies t- 
take their products and put them into the marketplace and it's particularly in agriculture and health so agri-food and health related so that's really my purpose right now but I think a lot about what's going on in our country and I think a lot about what's happening and I don't know maybe right now isn't the best time for me I'm getting older though Ryan so maybe I'll never happen I just never say never but right now I don't know I'm pretty happy to <laughs> okay well all I'm all I'm going to take from that is never say never and then we're just going to roll with that um, Arlene thank you so much for this really appreciate you fitting us into your morning and and uh, enjoy what looks like an absolutely beautiful surrounding there and a very happy new year to you. Same to you, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me letting me talk. You got it. That's Arlene Dickinson, obviously a, a, a very high profile uh, entrepreneur and, and business support. I mean, you, isn't it interesting? You learn things about what fuels some of these these people that that if, if you were to say, uh, you know, who are some of the most prominent entrepreneurs in Canada? Uh, Arlene Dickinson would be on most people's lists. And so I'm always curious to pick her brain, pick other people's, be like, what is it that makes you tick? How do you face adversity? What do you see as the role of government? And then, of course, would you ever see yourself getting involved? Had an interesting exchange with some people the other day talking about, you know, who would make good politicians. Um, and, and I don't think that what we take, the, the primary thing we take from this conversation with Arlene Dickinson is that she's interested in politics. Uh, the, the question was at the very end for a reason. Um, but what does draw... Uh, what is good for the general public when it comes to the, the draw of politics and who is drawn to politics and got into kind of an interesting exchange with some 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 folks on Twitter. Um, I knew who some of them were. I didn't know who some of them were. But the coolest part about it was that the conversation kept reaching, uh, you know, more and more people that were chiming in with, you know, more and more diverse perspectives. And the idea being that, you know, some, some person, you know, some people were saying that, you know, uh, you know, if you're going to get involved in politics, we should say no to the wealthy. In other words, you'd you'd have to cap it at a net a net worth of, of ten million dollars. If you're worth more than ten million dollars, you can't get involved in politics. I mean, it, it sort of it starts to resemble kindergarten games here. Wait, I have more rules. I'm going to make more rules. It's like, what are you? How are you going to enforce this? It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. But the theory, the premise of it, you know, some folks were saying it's you know the, when the wealthy are involved in politics, they're only going to legislate things that are beneficial to the wealthy, and that doesn't help the common folks like us. And then the other idea might be that if people have built up a, a large net worth and they're financially secure and comfortable, it would indicate, number one, that they've kind of figured a few things out, that they're street smart, they're wise, uh, they've understood how to build business, they understand how to how, how to sort of roll out a plan, to have a business plan, and then to, to, to you know manifest that plan, make it happen, and find success, and that would be a good thing. Um, and then others would suggest that that perhaps, you know, politicians shouldn't earn uh, any salary whatsoever, right? And we sort of go down that road. Other folks were suggesting that maybe you should have certain quotas that you try to fill when it comes to gender equality or equality of, of, of folks' backgrounds, uh, whether it's a, a religious backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds or, or, or cultural uh, perspectives that people bring to the table. I mean, there are these these types of conversations to be had that I think are very important. We had a wonderful conversation, a roundtable just last week with the the three mayors uh, out, out of um, Sturgeon County and, and, and Red Deer and St. Albert. And it was wonderful to, to check in with, with Tara Veer and Alana Natchew and Kathy Heron and, and talk about their perspectives on women in politics as an example. So all of these conversations are good conversations to be had. I think what it really, kind of the overarching theme here is how do we feel or how do we get to a point where we feel like like our interests and society's best interests are being represented 
If we expect government to develop intuitive policy on things like immigration, wouldn't it make sense to have Canadians or Albertans, uh, Western Canadians, wherever you're listening to us from, that have been immigrants to Canada, that that understand what that's like? If we want to talk about matters like we talked about with Mayor Sorensen, reconciliation, uh, Indigenous relations, we need more Indigenous Canadians involved in, in politics. There are really exciting things happening in Alberta. I think of of Councillor uh, Catherine Swampy, just uh, south of Edmonton, who's a leader in her community and and uh, is doing remarkable things. And I mean, there are dozens, hundreds of examples, but we know there needs to be more. We need to have people that represent communities that are representative of Canada. And that's what it all comes down to. I know a lot of people would like to see Arlene Dickinson uh, involved in some form of politics moving forward. Um, are we good to go with our next guest? I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Guy Felicella is uh, uh, one of the more compelling speakers that I've heard uh, as of late. I had an opportunity to watch a couple of his TED talks, and and his opening line, uh, at least on one of them, uh, just stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know much about Guy, uh, but the fact of the matter is, he spent years in the grips of addiction, and now he's dedicated his career, and it's his personal passion, to advocating for harm reduction and removing the stigma against addiction and substance users. Guy, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Real Talk. Thank you for making time for us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. So I'm watching this TED Talk of yours uh, from earlier this year, and you say, I have died and been brought back to life six times. And I just went, whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, life's been a wild ride for sure. I mean, uh, to experience, uh, you know, the, the punishing impacts of, uh, substance use and addiction, uh, in my life has probably been, um, you know, one of the most challenging things I've ever had to battle back from. And especially, um, the toll that it takes uh, being brought back to life those uh, repeated uh, six times in, in a nine month uh, period were just, uh, you know, mentally and physically and spiritually um, uh, destructive. Uh, and it got me to a place um, that eventually that I realized that, uh, you know, I was either going to die or I was going to die trying to get out. And, and for me, I just had this, um, uh, you know, will inside that, uh, you know, I'd witnessed many friends, um, lose the battle and, uh, you know, we'd always talked about, uh, even in our struggles about doing something else besides this, It, it, we just couldn't, you know, our intent was to do it, which is so hard to do. And, uh, you know, I, I just didn't want to be a a statistic. Um, and so I battled to, you know, uh, to leave that, uh, that lifestyle. And and it took, uh, it, it took 30 years to do that. 30 years. I mean, you, you, but you are a, you are walking, living, breathing proof that harm reduction measures work. I mean, that's that's the power of a story. You're you're not. Uh, and with respect to to scientists and researchers, and and, and we need public health professionals, etc. I'm not saying we don't, but you don't come to the table with with, with theory that has not been practiced. Uh, you're talking. You're you're saying, listen, I I may very well have and probably would have been dead 
uh, had my life not uh, had an opportunity to walk down the path that it is currently walking down to give us a clear understanding guy of your journey. Uh, and I know you've told your story hundreds, if not thousands of times to captive audiences, but when it comes to, to substance use and, and addiction issues and, and, and everything that led you to, to, to where you are now delivering Ted talks and, and, and doing really high profile, adv- profile advising work on saving people's lives. Where, where did it all begin? Like, how did this all get started for you? You've told stories of your friends that were injured on construction sites, were prescribed opioids. How about with you? Well, it mine started uh, with just childhood trauma at an early age, and uh, it developed into anxiety, depression, and and self hatred. And um, you know, I wasn't diagnosed uh, with uh, anything at. Uh, uh, at an early age, I was later on in life, I'd struggled with uh, ADHD and, um, and a mild comprehension disorder. And, you know, I used, I used substances um, to, you, you know, uh, to cope. And what, what had happened is, um, you know, I was punished for using, you know, illicit drugs to try to cope with trauma and pain. And when I started venturing into the downtown east side, harm reduction wasn't even a word. Um, so I've seen it evolve uh, since the, the early 90s. And really not just, listen, it's not just that I was brought back to life six times because of harm reduction, but also, um, you know, five osteomyelitis, life-threatening bone infections, four in my left leg, one in my back where I had to learn how to walk again. Uh, the HIV crisis and the overdose crisis in the 90s um, that I battled through as well. And then the punishment of being, you know, uh, homeless uh, for, for that amount of time. It's just, you know, the astronomical uh, challenges for somebody to ask for uh, to try to receive help. But I was never offered, you know, uh, help that uh, that would work for me. I was offered uh, incarceration and and that's where a lot of a lot of it happens is that, uh, you know, and the life that I have today would not exist without harm reduction. And it's so vital for people to understand that uh, recovery is a great uh, aspect of trying to help people um, uh, who struggle with addiction. But if you look at the majority of people, um, they don't have a substance use disorder or they don't have an addiction, but they use drugs. And so not everybody is addicted to them. Uh, but everybody's at risk uh, with this contaminated drug supply that's uh, ripping, not just it's ripping the world. And so are sending people into recoveries often, especially to get off drugs. If your goal is to try to get off drugs, listen, I don't sugarcoat it to people. It's probably one of the hardest battles that I've ever endured in my life. And it took me 30 years to actually get one year off those drugs. So when you think about the process of recovery, if you're going to go into recovery for four months and then, you know, it's, it's such a, such a process. Yes. Some people can get it the first time. Some people uh, can get it after the 30th time. Some people um, that's not their goal. Uh, And so, you know, putting everything into uh, recovery services, um, is at the expense of harm reduction it just doesn't make sense because in order if you expect people to improve the quality of their lives they have to be alive to do that and that's why vital harm reduction services are so important in our society 
Guy, I want to make sure that uh, that that we're people have a clear understanding of what we're talking about. So when you say, you know, um, you know, basically what you're saying in, in plain language is that, you know, if I can call it, you know, crudely like detox, uh, although that's sort of an, uh, I, I ignores a lot of the approaches here, but detox versus versus supervised consumption sites. Right. That's what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about like if you can say to somebody, hey, if you can go dry or you can go clean or you can come to our addiction recovery retreat center where you'll be there for for four weeks or eight weeks or six months or whatever the case may be versus here's safe supply. In other words, it'll be government overseen, government provided safe supply of, of narcotics. And, and, and a safe or as safe as possible venue with medical supervision and social service support uh, to, to continue to use drugs in as safe a scenario as possible while building a relationship with healthcare. These are kind of the two models, right? From, from a civilian standpoint, did I do okay in characterizing them? Yeah, fairly good, yes. So what works when it comes to, I mean, there's, there's political measures at play here and and, and BC is different than Alberta is different than Ontario. Um, But, but what doesn't work with what you're seeing with regards to political approaches here and why? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the one challenge is also the medical system because uh, for safe supply to be uh, it's really contingent on a prescriber if a prescriber feels comfortable in prescribing and, and usually what, uh, you know, they, they're trained differently. They're trained to cause no harm. And yet, um, then they also have this other side where they're involved in the substance use disorder aspect of it, where they believe that offering these, uh, you know, potent narcotics could cause harm. But the reality is, is that if they're not offered these safer drugs that they're um, going to cause more harm by using the contaminated drugs and, you know, die because of it. I think, you know, the medical system that the safe supplies is, uh, it works for some, however, it won't work for everybody. And like I said, uh, to make it more accessible for people, we need another pathway as well outside of the medical system, whether that's kind of how the approach with uh, cannabis uh, and, and other substances, et cetera, that they've uh, you know, alcohol, you can buy it in a, in a store, you can buy cannabis now in a, in a, in a store. And, and the same thing needs to, 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 to happen with the illicit drugs, um, especially the ones uh, that are killing people. And I think uh, if you look at Switzerland's done really well with a, a heroin assisted treatment program there. And in a country that has around 8.5 million people, they have 1,700 people that are on uh, heroin-assisted treatment. Canada is four times the size of Switzerland, but yet only has 130 people on heroin across the country. And we are in a complete collapse. Uh, our drug policy has gone from a complete defeat to a debacle. What, what, what makes it such a debacle uh, in your assessment? Well, it's just drug policy is really the, it doesn't even allow harm reduction to actually do its, you know, full impact. If harm reduction was exempt from the drug policies that exist, then you could actually provide people with safer drugs uh, exempt from the drug policy that exists in our society today. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, we definitely wouldn't have, especially in our province, see five people dying every day. And across the country, you wouldn't see 15 people dying every day either. Like it's, it's, it, the numbers are, are astounding. 
15 people a day. I mean, and, you know, it's I, I've seen the opioid crisis described as Canada's other health epidemic. And uh, certainly uh, you can fairly say that. I mean, the, the numbers show that. And we, we, we also try to remind ourselves every time we talk about numbers, these are people. Uh, these are human beings. But, Guy, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, we've spoken with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith and, we, and we've we've spoken with health experts, uh, Dr. Elaine Hishka and, and Hakeek Farani uh, and, and others um, about about different approaches to this. Um, and, and I think every single person has acknowledged that it would require political will. And you would think uh, that a politician, uh, a leader, let me say the prime minister, for example, would be able to step in front of Canadians and say 15 of us are dying every day and for the most part although you may take issue with this i don't know but for the most part they they strike me as preventable deaths Uh, we're gonna have to take drastic action and you would think that a general population would say whatever you need to do let's do it let's talk to the experts let's implement the policy let's let's invest in harm reduction and let's save people's lives Uh, am i oversimplifying it is is it just a lack of political will I think, you know, politics is definitely playing a huge part of it. But if you look even in countries like Switzerland, too, I think, you know, it took politics to actually get it to 1700 people as well. So uh, you have both sides that, you know, you just need somebody to step up and be and be bold enough to uh, to to speak about it. And especially a leader um, like our prime minister. I know he's outspoken in saying that he supports safe supply. Well, I would challenge anybody that says that they support safer supply then to create a domestic uh, supply of pharmaceutical alternatives here in Canada and make substances such as heroin uh, and, uh, you know, put uh, 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 programs across the country so that people can have access to the service. Because uh, I always tell say this, that if you're going to give drug users the least sought after drugs that people aren't using, then they will continue to access the contaminated ones and they will die because of it. And another uh, thing that happens too, is that um, politically when, uh, you know, governments are outspoken on, uh, on just one aspect uh, such as recovery, what happens is, is that it puts harm reduction at the expense of harm reduction which uh, you can't support people when they're in recovery, but then um, when they are using drugs, uh, be completely unsupportive of them. It just doesn't make sense. It's a full spectrum of care that we need, and we need all aspects in order for people to uh, receive the help that they need, but also to improve the quality of their lives. And one of the biggest things with SCSs and OPSs is, is that a lot of society believes that they're not working, and it's because they see, you know, uh, you know, people all in the area or gathering in the area. Well, SCS is uh, life-saving for the overdose crisis. It saves lives. Yeah. However, it doesn't address poverty and homelessness. And so that is another aspect. Uh, so, you know, with uh, supervised consumption sites, they don't uh, alleviate homelessness and poverty either. Yeah, we have a, a great comment here. From, I mean, it's great to see people that are watching this live, but Joel uh, is watching. He says, you know, the idea that the unhoused uh, or the those that are addicted can get their lives back without assistance from government uh, is ridiculous. That from Joel. We're talking to Guy Felicella, um on our, our hashtag here on Twitter, Real Talk RJ. It's amazing to see uh, my good friend, uh, Petra Schultz uh, from Mums Stop the Harm. She's watching. I know I knew your face. Would, every time I hear her name, I just, my face smiles. She says our good friend and recovery ally. Uh, good to see him on Real Talk today. Uh, she says this is not to be missed. Um, Guy, in just a moment, I, w- I want to talk to you about 
uh, reducing stigma because I know that's a big part of the work you do. Um, of course, you at home, our audience uh, knows that our hashtag Real Talk RJ is powered by the folks at Park Power, and we're thrilled to have them supporting these important conversations that we have each and every day. You may have heard us announce just earlier this week uh, that, uh, well, Park Power is dangling a carrot for you Real Talkers that are looking to maybe move your business when it comes to electricity, natural gas, and internet. They're in all three hustles. They have been for the last seven or eight years, proudly owned and operating out of Alberta, Canada. That's where the call center is. That's where the customer service center is. And that's where the nonprofits are, the charities that benefit from Park Power's profit sharing. But here's the deal. If you take your business over to Park Power and you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, 2021-REALTALK, you'll receive $70 off your first bill. No questions asked. That's what you get for using that promo code. And we're grateful. We're talking uh, business or residential services. Also very grateful to be partnered up with Clean Air Club. Sam and I here in the studio breathe easier. We asked them to do an audit for us and they've implemented measures here, including an air purification system. They told us so the most important thing you can do at home so your family can breathe more easy in 2021 is make sure you're paying attention to your furnace filters sign up at cleanairclub.ca they take care of the rest you tell them the size of the filter you need they deliver those filters to your home they keep you on schedule and of course they support small business along the way with a little gift as many of you know many of you that have signed up at cleanairclub.ca we're talking to Guy Felicella. Guy's a peer clinical advisor with the BC Center on Substance Use. He's a survivor himself, more than a 30-year journey, as he's described to us. Uh, Guy, we know a big part of this conversation has to be on reducing stigma, and I hate to have to cut to the, you know, typically what people trot out is they say, you know, it's not just folks downtown. You know, it's not just the homeless population. And, and when we make those arguments, I sit there and think, well, that devalues the lives of people that are between housing that the devalues that we say, Oh, it's not just the homeless. Here's why you should care about it. I mean, it's almost like that's been the societal attitude. How do you hit this head on? I mean, how do you make tangible, meaningful progress in eradicating or addressing anyway, stigma? Yeah. Well, I mean, stigma is created by structural stigma, which is created by bad drug policies, uh, which fuels public, uh, the general population stigma, which, and then, uh, cripples the person who uses drugs, uh, such as the substance user themselves. Uh, and you know, the, the government, uh, you know, loves to put these ad campaigns, but they're the ones that started the stigma in the, in the first place by not, uh, by creating these policies in place. And so one of the biggest things that we need to do to start uh, reducing stigma is uh, decriminalize uh, all drugs, all illicit drugs, so that uh, people don't have to, uh, you know, uh, isolate uh, in their tremendous amount of, uh, you know, society pointing fingers. I mean, there's just the, the crippling aspects. I often say this, you know, my overcoming addiction was just one of the biggest battles but the the other biggest battle was surviving the stigma the discrimination and the relentless punishment from bad drug policies that um nearly ended my life six times and if you think about it uh having just to survive the bad drug policies but then to battle through and to survive through uh your addiction no person uh, should ever have to go through this. And that's why we need to remove the criminal justice aspect of punishing uh, substance users. 
and move to a supportive model to support people. This, by decriminalizing drugs, uh, will actually start the process of reducing stigma. I'm, I'm paying keen attention to what our audience members are saying as they're watching now live on, on YouTube. And, um, you know, it's amazing to see uh, Ewan Thompson watching. I know Ewan and his team at Raft Beer Labs have, have done what, what they can to ensure that businesses, Alberta-based businesses, are contributing to reducing stigma, to providing resources uh, as part of their commitment to community. You know, he says reducing stigma uh, in response to a list or uh, James, who said it, reducing stigma comes from the top. It'll take a generation to do so. Uh, Ewan says, you know, it can also come from the bottom. We are all drug users. And the more that we open up about it, the less people feel like they need to use in the shadows where it's more dangerous. So that's kind of an interesting back and forth. It's got to come from the top. It can come from the bottom. It can come from the everyday people. Where do you land on that? Well, for sure. I mean, we, 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 you know, obviously the, the first uh, place that it does uh, often come from is the drug user side, the push from the activists, the advocates, the health professionals that uh, continue to, you know, try to push the uh, system into looking at change. But we also need people up top to actually uh, the ones that are in power, you know, it's an interesting thing when people are in power, um, you, you know, they hold on to that power and yet don't make any changes. And, you know, I often ask politicians this, um, did you do it because you wanted the power or do you do it because you want to make changes? And in our society right now, these changes are um, continuing to um, destroy our families, our friends, our communities, the workforce, the economy, everything. I, I mean, it's just a, a a series of events that's happened over the last, uh, you know, you know, 20 years, but uh, especially since the uh, drug supply became so toxic and um, will continue to, um, you know, end more people's lives uh, tragically. And these are preventable deaths. And, and, and until we actually um, push the system and have uh, somebody uh, up top say, okay, yes, here we go. Um, we need to uh, access people to have access to safer drugs. Uh, and, and a good place to start for them is we have these beautiful SCSs and OPSs um, that should be in every single community uh, across our province or our country. And yet we allow people to bring in their contaminated drugs and use them there, but we'll bring them back to life. Shouldn't we actually just give them the safer drugs when they're coming into these facilities? Yeah. You know, I, I guy, I don't want to, uh, you know, my brother would be better uh, equipped to tell this story. He has done in past. My brother, Kyle works at insight in Vancouver and he's, he's told me, uh, and I hope I'm not oversimplifying or missing details, but he told me anecdotally that they're, they're able to test uh, drugs on site. Uh, that, w- that would indicate whether or not it's, it's you know, I, I hesitate to use the word safe, but that, th- you know, to, to give uh, the person who's about to use this drugs an understanding of what they're getting into. And he said that they've had uh, times that have sort of hit him between the eyes where a drug has tested uh, or has indicated by way of the test that it could be potentially uh, life altering or life ending. In other words, the test indicates that this is a, a, a toxic uh, chemical concoction. Uh, and he said that the 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 relationship of this person with that drug is so evident in that that person would continue or would make the decision to proceed uh, with with injecting that toxic drug, which to me is is a indicative of the power of that narcotic and, and b really, really heartbreaking, but a huge reality check. I mean, that's that's anecdotal, but that one really struck me. 
Well, if you even look at my life, so six overdoses, 20 years of being homeless, five osteomyelitis bone infections, and numerous other infections that would have ended my life numerous times. It still did not stop me, yeah. not with all the recovery services that exist. It still did not stop me from continuing to use over and over again. What did stop me was the amount of compassion and empathy that took 30 years of people chipping away at a prison wall that I built around myself. And finally, the last uh, incident, uh, February 18th, where I was brought back to life uh, in 2013 at a supervised consumption site. And I woke up and I was out for about 10 minutes. The nurse was crying because she didn't think I was going to come back. And that and I said, why are you crying? She just said to me, God, I just, I care about you. And at that moment, that last little, there was not one moment. There were so many moments of people that showed me that, you know, that, that I was a human being and that I mattered in their lives that finally just shattered the, the broke the dam and the water just pushed through. And, you know, a month later, um, it was the, the last time that I used illicit drugs, but it, it's, it's a, it's such a, it's such a, a, a journey and the power of human connection. And that's what harm reduction is. It's just such a powerful human connection that changes the direction of people's lives. It's a non-judgmental approach that just loves people for using drugs and where they're at and tries to do the best um, at reducing the harms caused by those drugs. And, and that's, you know, I've been beaten to, I mean, the scars that are riddled through my body. You know, I often say that I could just never forget uh, in my lifetime, uh, just how powerful harm reduction really is and just how more of our society needs to start implementing it uh, in everything that we do. Uh, I'm just I'm looking at let me hold this up to the camera because I don't have my uh, my actual digital stuff set up. Sam's going to just roll his eyes at this because we can do this better. But I'm just check. I'm just checking out. I hope that comes across. <laughs> I'm just looking at your family photo, my man. Look at that. Uh, three beautiful <laughs> children. I mean, life is good. My brother, you talk about you talk about uh, being brought back to life in 2013. And I would imagine that that probably feels like an eternity ago with regards to the progress you've made and where you're at. But also it provides hope because it's actually not that long ago. And, you know, and, and, and I mean, here you are just doing an unbelievable job. And I just it's you know, let me read this. I wonder I'm, I'm taking a look at our hashtag um, at Real Talk RJ. I'm so glad that Emily Dugas is watching and and she says, you know, vocabulary is so important in regards to stigma. Uh, and guy, I'll get back to you. I, I, I want to be a sponge and I, and I want to change and evolve my language as necessary. I want to be part of this growth as a society and I want to be part of the life saving effort we can all be part of. Emily says, you know, we have to stop calling these deaths overdoses. She says the word suggests like choice or intent or that folks have, you know, taken too much. She says these are poisoned drugs, period. That from Emily. You know, I mean, there, there's one example of one thing we can change to address stigma. Yeah, no, well, Emily's uh, right. Really, the root cause behind it all is really the 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 bad drug policy. I mean, that's the driving factor. And that's not that's, you know, the government's making a choice not to change those drug policies. So that's the part that needs to be changed. Um, and, you know, honestly, uh, if you look at just the iron laws of prohibition, the, the harder the enforcement, the harder the drugs. 
And if you think our stop right now is at, uh, you know, fentanyl or car fentanyl, no, if we continue this, this, this pattern, uh, the drugs will continue to get increasingly toxic. And, uh, you know, you don't need a tolerance for fentanyl. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, I had, I, I used heroin for, for decades, never overdosed once. And then in 2012, when I started buying fentanyl, um, you know, I, I'd overdosed six times in, in, in nine months. And that, and then that was in 2012 and it's gotten increasingly worse, um, over the last eight years. When, when we talk about stigma, it can manifest itself, I think, in public attitudes. It can manifest itself in, in interpersonal communication, obviously in government policy at a municipal or provincial or federal level, uh, but also with regards to corporations. I was I was impressed to see you share, uh, and people can follow you on Twitter at Guy Felicella. You can check out GuyFelicella.com. But you shared a letter that you received December 16th of this year from a life insurance provider from Manulife that, that had essentially pulled your coverage because of your past history. Um I would imagine that would feel like a punch in the gut. It would probably anger some people. How, can, can you take us into that experience when you opened that envelope? Did you see this coming? Well, I was told that, uh, you, you know, by the our financial advisor that, uh, yeah, no, it's just some, you know, you're a relatively healthy guy. That's what they'll base it on. And, you know, they'll ask questions. And, you know, here I have it. You, you can't, you, you know, I, I live a life with integrity. So I, I was, I was honest and, uh, with the questions. And, and when we got the letter, my wife was actually approved the next day, um, for life insurance and me, it took, it was like a couple weeks and they called me back even a couple more times. And just the questions that they asked were so stigmatizing, like asking me to describe events of my criminal history and describe, um, uh, if uh, my addiction, if I needed follow up treatment with it. And, um, you know, I'm telling her, like, look, lady, it's a it's a life journey. You know, yes, I, I, I made some, you know, uh, some errors in my life, but who hasn't? Um, and then getting the letter that says I'm just being denied on the two aspects of my criminal history and my drug using history. Um, you know, it's you you read something like that and you know the life insurance isn't for me it's for my three beautiful kids and my wife if something were to uh to happen to me uh it's for the protection of my family and to you know to understand um it was very hurtful uh, but not only that where i think even more so is that you know i have three young kids and i don't want them to um, grow up in a, in a, in a world that, um, chooses to be so judgmental towards people, um, uh, because of their past. And, you know, and that's one of the things that I fight for. I don't just fight for my kids. I fight for everybody's kids and I fight for the lost friends that, and I fight for the moms that lost their children. I fight and I will continue to um, fight until there's no breath left in me. It's just, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've gone down this path and really I describe it to people. It's that the, the punishment that I had to endure, the crushing punishment that I had to endure really put me in a place uh, where today it's very good. Uh, and I'm very compassionate and empathetic towards people. I, I don't 
um, put expectations on people. And I don't fix people. People find a way to fix themselves. I support them. Uh, and there's a difference between trying to um, to do that. When I support people, that means I'm empowering them to uh, choose their journey. And I'm just going to support them. And whether that means getting them safe supply, whether that means getting them housing, whether that means whatever it is that they want to recover from, I just want to be there on that journey. And I know how uh, don't sugarcoat recovery is saying that it's like, uh, you know, rainbows and, and, and leprechauns and your life becomes this uh, amazing, um, it, you know, immediately. It's, it's such a process and it takes it's a battle that, uh, you know, that I try to explain to people that it's not one that's uh, easy. If you look at my life, it took me, you know, 30 years to get there. And, uh, and I just had the desire inside to continue to battle um, through the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands. And, and finally it was just a, um, a bunch of people that supported me through that journey that, and guess what? The harm reduction movement that started in the nineties was actually only one person. Her name was Liz Evans that started the Portland housing society. And I remember her just giving me a syringe in water. She said, do you want one? I thought she was going to charge me for it because that's how it was back then. They would charge you for these things. And she just said, no, I want to give you one. And I was just like, what? And, uh, and she says, listen, I don't care that you use drugs. I just want you to use them safely. Mm. And I just was like, I just wanted to give her a hug. Cause that was the, that was the first moment of, of compassion in my life that made me believe that, uh, you, you know, Hey, I'm a human being and I'm, I, I live in this society. And even though um, I have my challenges, I'm still a human being. Guy, I'm, I'm so grateful you've joined us today. I, I, I want to wrap with this. When we talk about stigma, when we talk about supports, when we talk about empathy and treating people like people, like you've just described, you you, you began this conversation with us uh, talking about you know your journey and, and childhood trauma that you sustained. I was, uh, we were, we've been facilitating conversations on on uh, safe supply and supervised consumption, and you know ever since this show, this it's the show is an infant. It's only six weeks old, but but we've had these conversations, and it's and it's gleaned some interesting feedback, including from one of my favorite NHL hockey players of all time back on December 19th, uh, Theron Fleury, who, who, who has lived out loud, certainly, um, and who has experienced his own journey. And, and if I remember correctly, I think Theron just marked 5,000 days of, of sobriety himself. Uh, but he reached out on December 19th. He tweeted at me and he said, he said, we're talking about systemic trauma. He said thousands of years worth. Uh, trauma is at the core of every single issue we have in society, especially addiction, unresolved trauma is the cause of addiction, emotional pain and suffering. What can we do better as a society and as individuals to better address trauma? Yeah, no, it's uh, Saren's right. Uh, I actually just posted on Twitter. That's really the, 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 the driving force behind addiction. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, you have somebody that's impacted by trauma, trauma, whether it was childhood trauma or abuse, and then they're using drugs or alcohol because of it. Then we as a society come on and add more layers of trauma uh, to that person. Um, 
you can understand why uh, the systemic uh, barriers that exist for people to reach out and, 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 and receive help. I mean, even when you first meet somebody, especially with substance use disorder, mental health or trauma, they have this baggage of trauma that they're carrying with them. And immediately we have, we push more trauma on them by telling them that, you know, oh, this is not something that we do here or we can't help. What I really think that what we need is trauma therapy needs to be covered by MSP. Um, because even when you go into recovery, um, you, you know, uh, for me, uh, what stuck this time, I didn't go to treatment. I went to, well, I, uh, inpatient treatment. I went to outpatient treatment and I met a trauma therapist. And I, I tell you, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it was, it, it, it was amazing. And I established my relationship with the substances and really what had happened is that, um, where she got me to a place is that, you know, I got to a place there myself is the hardest thing for me to say was, um, you are not responsible for the trauma that you endured as a child, mm. but you are responsible to pass on the healing instead of passing on more trauma. And it took me, oh, years to actually believe that. And because the systemic barriers and the systemic trauma that impacts generation to generation to generation, just remember that we as a society and as people, cannot pass on more trauma because that relives the old trauma and new trauma will do that. You'll be triggered by your old trauma. What we need to do is be um, more empathetic and compassionate to understand that. Uh, and trauma informed practice isn't trauma therapy either. And that's why I'm advocating right now that uh, trauma therapy be covered under the MSP because it was actually the biggest uh, impact of why I managed to dramatically turn my life around, but not only that, understand my relationship with the substances and that I didn't need to use them anymore to cope with the trauma that I'd endured for so many years. Uh, but this is an ongoing process and I still go to trauma therapy um, every twice a week. And unfortunately, I mean, luckily for me, I do have benefits, but those benefits do run out and then I have to pay out of pocket as well. And so uh, if we really want to get to the root causes of addiction, then we're going to have to start addressing the trauma and really these recovery centers, um, they do well at addressing some of the surface stuff. But let me tell you, it doesn't take four months to go into treatment and then walk out of there and be, you know, trauma free. Uh, this is a, a lifetime battle and there's no you're, you just don't get trauma supports going to an AA or an NA meeting. You need to have that included in the continuum and practice. And if we are serious at uh, you know, we don't have you know, we have a you know, you look at people often say. Uh, we have this addiction problem. I often say, well, what we have is an unaddressed trauma problem. Guy, we're uh, so blessed to have had the opportunity to to welcome you to the program today and to hear you speak from uh, uh, the perspective that you speak from, which is incredibly powerful. I want to let our listeners know that they can follow you on Twitter at Guy Felicella. We've, we've linked to that from my Twitter account when we went on the air this morning. You can check out GuyFelicella.com. And I encourage you, um, if, if, if what you're hearing from Guy is inspiring you, you can easily find, just Google his name, you can find his TED Talks. Uh, well worth the time uh, and investment there of your time to, to come to a better understanding of this incredibly important subject matter. Thank you for this, and we'll wish you a happy new year and look forward to the next time our paths cross. 
Thanks for having me, Ryan. You have a great day and keep up the good work. You as well. What an amazing story. That's incredible. And I love that Guy reiterates that that, that his his journey is not complete. Uh, you know, he still attends uh, trauma therapy sessions twice a week. We understand uh, that there are barriers to counseling and barriers to mental health and trauma supports for people, um, including just the, the straight up dollars and cents of it all. I want to get to some of your comments here, uh, live comments left on our YouTube comment thread. But but first, want to recognize uh, the partners that support us each and every day that make conversations like this possible. And that includes the remarkable ownership team at Dairy Queen and Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. There's six of them. Uh, these are our ride or die sponsors. These are the ones that have communicated with us and said, we just want to make sure that, that Canadians are having conversations that matter. And that includes Mark and Michael, the ownership team, and of course, the team of uh, incredible employees that continue to show up each and every day to keep Albertans fed at the six Dairy Queens in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Make sure you show them your support. Also so grateful for the team at Westworld Computers. We've just upgraded uh, a lot of the, well, the thoroughbreds in our stable, so to speak, uh, Sam Brooks, including this new, maybe we can take camera four so we can show off this new desktop unit that you've got there. You, you've, you've got, what, what were you saying? You said like when it comes to horses, you've got like, I was going to do an obscure oh. chuck wagon racing reference, but you've got like Kelly Sutherland's barn right now under the, yeah, that's, yeah, that's an obscure chuck wagon <laughs> reference. <laughs> that's, unless, <laughs> hey, unless you love racing chucks and then you know exactly what we're talking about. But this new iMac, you're, you're taking it for this a thing spin. Is, uh, this thing is, uh, this thing is a thoroughbred Mustang, uh, <laughs> open wide in a, in an open field. That's what it is. <laughs> this thing is I, like, I am barely touching the performance specs of this. Thing is that right? Point. Oh yeah. So we need, so what you're telling me is we need to add, we'll, we'll let the team at Westworld know this. Uh, we need to throw more at you. We need to throw, <laughs> we need, we need to. Yeah, that's what I need. More on my plate. <laughs> Sam, we need to. First of all, let me let me let me pump Westworld's tires, and then we'll pump yours because you've been doing. I wish people could see what's been going on behind the scenes today. You've been problem solving uh, and doing an amazing job at it. But we trust Westworld with keeping us uh, up to date with the, the the highest end gear because we know we can't have interruptions in this show, and they vow to do the same for you. Whether it's your home setup or your business setup, Daryl and his team at Westworld. Uh, here in Edmonton, just off Mayfield Road, have been in business, family business for more than 40 years, and they're very proud of the work that they do. Uh, you know, it's it's the the conversations that unfold. I can't uh, explain. And you've had to do a little troll hunting today on the on the on the comment line. Um, and you've been doing an amazing job keeping an eye on that. But for the most part, amazingly productive conversations um two beaver is watching and two beaver says you know talking about trauma that's what residential schools did to indigenous people it is also intergenerational absolutely true and if you talk to indigenous uh elders or uh, cultural experts, commentators, uh, Adam North Pagan was with us on the show. Uh, they'll, they'll talk about um, oftentimes the premise or the, the theory of seven generations of healing to say if we're truly going to heal from something like the trauma uh, incurred by, perpetrated by and incurred as a result of residential schools, it's going to take seven generations for that to work its way out. Uh, and that's probably putting it crassly to work its way out. There's a lot of work and this is not an insignificant task. Um, but that's absolutely the truth. I even think, have you, like, I, I don't know if, 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 I haven't spoken with you about this, but on, on Amazon Prime, there's that new, I think it's called Tough Guy. It's the new Bob Probert documentary. I watched it the other night and it was, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of fighting in hockey. I know not everybody has an appetite for that. Some people get pissed off when I say that, but I love fighting in hockey. I think it's an important part of hockey, but 
But when you look back on the sort of the, the golden era of fighting in hockey, and then it, probably, you know, the 1970s with the Philadelphia Flyers leading into the 80s and all the heavyweights. And you think of, you know, if you, if you pick your favorite hockey team and there's a heavyweight associated with them, I think of like Vancouver Canucks, Donald Brashear. I think of the Edmonton Oilers and like take your pick, uh, you know, whether it's George LaRock or Marty McSorley or, or, or somebody else in the Calgary Flames. I think of Sandy McCarthy and we th- oh, every team's got their heavyweight, their enforcer. Uh, Bob Probert was that it was the, the league heavyweight for years and years, but we're coming to a, an understanding as, as we see tragic lives, uh, lost, uh, deaths by suicide, you know, with, with, with Rippon in Vancouver and, and, and Belak and Bugard and, 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 and we're having more conversations about head injuries and concussions and, 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 and brain injuries and, and the language we use and the stigma that has come or evaporated as a result. These are really, there's like an evolution happening uh, in society with regards to how we how we talk about trauma, whether it's physical trauma like brain injuries, whether it's emotional trauma, physical trauma, like like workplace injuries and accidents. But if you take a look at, you know, I was watching this documentary, the 1980s or the 1990s till now, it's even remarkable how attitudes, I think, have changed. And a big part of this comes back to the conversation around stigma. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is is like more knowledge is more power. You know, yeah. and, and we're sort of like in the 70s. Let's use the hockey example. You know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, in the in the in the tough guy enforcer era of hockey, that was that was how you won games. That's how you won championships. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen the game, I think, rightfully kind of evolve into a faster, more of a passing based game, uh, more of that speed and that finesse. But I think the other thing is it takes courage to change a norm that you're used to. You know what I mean? Like everybody can agree that that head trauma and head injuries are causing irreparable harm to these institutions like hockey that we care so dearly about. And it takes courage to say the way we used to do it was wrong. Yeah. And we have to change it. And I know that, you know, clinging to the past for past sake is is kind of destructive and and that exactly comes back into what we're talking about about drug policy is is you know, you need to you need to be willing to make an uncomfortable change and you need to be willing to make the change in your life, whether you're a fan of hockey that's going to watch fewer fights or, you know, watching, supporting uh, safe injection programs and housing programs and the things that actually give drug users the real supports they need, even though it might make you a little uncomfortable to think about. Yeah, it. no kidding. And and we talk about people who use drugs and we acknowledge that, that like someone said earlier, Ewan said earlier, uh, we all use drugs. I mean, there's going to be people, people watching right now uh, or people that hear this thing <laughs> exactly that are going, uh, I don't use drugs as they crush their sixth coffee of the morning or, or you know, smash out their eighth dart of the morning, smoke it outside. Um, Tracy says, you know, we need stronger labor supports as well to prevent people from self-medicating to block the pain so they can get up and go to work each day. This often begins the gateway to addiction. 100%. You know, I wonder if you talk to, you know, people, many people that are procuring their drug supply, tainted drug supply on the street. And you say, how did your journey begin? And it might be a back injury or a knee injury at work. Right. It wasn't like partying and, you know, oh, I started smoking pot and that was the gateway to this, to this, to this. And here I am. No, for a lot of people, it was it, it was a concussion or it was a back injury. Um, you know, this these conversations are amazing. Uh, Chris says planting seeds of kindness is so important. You may never see them bloom yourself, but it doesn't mean they aren't effective. Um, you know, um, 
And then how about this? Uh, Lister here says, you got to love a conversation that can take a sharp left from drug addiction and drug use to ice cream and horses. Yeah, 100%. It's how we roll in April is watching, saying, meantime, the horse population on here or those involved with horses is like, uh, thoroughbred Mustang. Uh, we we were out yeah. of our depth. I we yeah. I was <laughs> I was I was pulling that out of my air. Um, we I I love horses. Depth. I love being around horses. I love riding horses. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> you have a healthy respect for horses. Absolutely. Do you? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, hey, speaking of no, I have no transition here. But uh, this has been this has been an amazing broadcast, and uh, and time really flew. I thought we, you know we could have spent another half hour talking to Banff's Mayor Karen Sorensen. We could have talked for another hour with Arlene Dickinson. We were grateful that she made time for us, and then we went way into overtime uh, with Guy Felicella. And uh, I mean, I guess there's really no such thing as overtime if we don't have an end time stamped on the interview. But but I feel like that's a guy that we could we could have explored any number of angles with him and and picked his brain for an hour and learned so much. I appreciate many of you that are chiming in right now saying. Well, you know, Joel just says, wow, that is some real talk, right? Scott's watching. He says that was really eye opening. Uh, I feel the same way. We want the, we want it to be that every single morning that you join us here or every afternoon or evening that you download this podcast. I know that that many of you, as a matter of fact, the majority of you will be will be listening to this uh, not live. You'll be listening to this, you know, hours or, or days or even weeks from now. And we're grateful for that. We hope that it that it pushes you to a position of being uncomfortable. Maybe not a lot of podcasts would would advertise themselves or a lot of live streaming shows would advertise themselves as come here to get uncomfortable. Uh, but that's part of our mandate. That includes the conversations yesterday. We talked about religion. We talked about the Catholic Church. We talked about sexual abuse. I, that, w- that was a heavy show for me. It was a heavy show for many of you, and I know that because you, you wrote in and you told us about it. And you've been sharing. Some of you were very angry at comments that I made uh, about the Catholic Church and about and about restitution to sexual abuse victims. Uh, I don't walk back a millimeter of it, uh, but I appreciate your passion. Uh, some of you perceive it to be an attack on religion, um, which, which you know, to oversimplify, but to cut right to the chase, I don't. My religion doesn't include uh, serial sexual assaults and molestations. It doesn't include protecting predators. That has nothing to do with religion, or it should have nothing to do with religion. It's not an attack on religion to talk about the poison in the water the poison in the well. And if you don't talk about it, then people are going to continue to sustain these types of traumas, uh, similar to what Guy talked to us about. Uh, I'm being careful not to draw a direct line between the two stories, but when we talk about childhood trauma for a lot of people that has come at the hands of adults, predators that have seen these children, these young people as their prey, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have, but but we had it yesterday and we'll continue to have these conversations because this is what real talk is all about. And we're grateful that you're with us on the journey. We're also grateful that we have the support of sponsors that have joined us on this journey as this show continues to grow and launches into 2021. And Friesen Brothers is one of those uh, partners. It's amazing to hear from so many of you. Like we're hearing from Lacombe and Sylvan Lake this week going, all this talk about Friesen Brothers is just reiterating to us that we don't have a Friesen Brothers in our neck of the woods. So I'll tell you what, I'm advocating for you. I can't make any promises, but I'm advocating for you. And in the meantime, want to let you know that they're so excited, the team at Friesen Brothers, to open their 15th Alberta location. It's happening early in 2021. We're going to give you the exact date as soon as we can, but this 
store just off the Anthony Henday, right around the Rabbit Hill Road area. Uh, if it's anything like the stores that we visit in Stony Plain and Fort Saskatchewan, it's going to blow your minds and it's going to change the grocery game in Alberta's capital city. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned as is local waste services of course the sponsors of trash talk which again uh, and sam it's an early edition of trash talk it's actually coming up tomorrow because I wanted to give uh, a, a clear idea of what Real Talk is going to look like over the next couple of days. Uh, local Waste sponsors Trash Talk, which is your chance to get things off your chest, to rant and to rave. Uh, you can submit your rants and your raves to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you mark it as a Trash Talk submission. Now, Wednesday morning, we're going to get to that right around 10 o'clock because Thursday is a very special broadcast. Thursday is a private broadcast, if you will, that's limited to our Patreon supporters. We are so grateful to those that that contribute five bucks a month or some of you more than that to make sure that this show can continue to grow, can continue to broaden its reach. So Thursday morning, if you want to learn more about that, by the way, just go to ryanjesperson.com and click on the Patreon link, which is right in the top right hand corner. On Thursday morning, we're going to be uh, providing our Patreon supporters with a zoom link and sam we're going to try something for the very first time we're doing kind of a private q a we'll call it a broadcast but really it's a gathering it's kind of a new year's party for our patreon supporters uh if you want to get in on that if you want to get that zoom link so you can join that private party uh just check out the patreon link at ryanjesperson.com our website is also where you're going to find the why station question of the week this is where we invite you to get real it's get real our question of the week this is how we get a very clear sense of how you feel about issues that matter so we're building our real talk panel uh, the pitch here is very simple it doesn't cost you anything uh but it's your chance to make sure that your voice is heard so whether you're a liberal or a conservative whether you voted for the ndp the alberta party or the united conservatives federally wherever you voted however you feel whether you make fifteen thousand bucks a year or 1.5 million bucks a year whether you're a 65 year old dude or an 18 year old girl whether we have not even described your reality yet the fact of the matter is we want you to be represented in our understanding Understanding of issues that matter. So check out the question of the week at ryanjesperson.com and we would be honored if you would contribute. Now I checked in, Sam, I, I took a look at where we're at this week. Our question of the week this week, and we're going to be getting to this early in the new year because we wanted to let this simmer for a bit so we could get really meaningful responses. But but basically the question is, is you know, what sort of an impact will 2020 have on you? And so it gives people an opportunity to talk about, we say at the end of 2020, a year that we'll never forget, tell us about the status of these aspects in your life. And the responses, uh, we've got several hundred of them already. We're hoping to have a thousand responses to this one. You know, once we can get into that thousand, fifteen hundred number every week, I mean, we're talking very meaningful polling here, several hundred already. And, and we've asked people to assess uh, these aspects of your life. So, for example, are, are you much worse off than before? Are you a little worse off? Are you a little better off? Or are you much better off? And we're receiving some really interesting responses. The question is still open and will remain open. And until next Monday's show. So you still have time to check in at ryanjesperson.com. Just click on question of the week right at the top. So here's some interesting sneak peek numbers. For example, uh, out of several hundred responses so far, 11% of respondents say that their career is much worse off. 11%. 41% say their careers are about the same. 
the same number as much worse off or much better off. 11% of respondents to this point have said their careers are much better off. Now, here are some of the more interesting numbers. When it comes to finances, 25% of our respondents, a quarter of them, said their finances are a little bit better off which was something I wasn't sure I expected. Maybe that means people haven't been traveling as much. People haven't been spending as much going out to bars and restaurants. Maybe that's it. Maybe the entertainment budgets have been lower. Are you surprised to hear that number? I'm not surprised. I, I think that uh, 2020 has is, is really highlighted a bit of a divide in, in that there's there's some people that were just kind of living on the edge and, and, and doing everything they could to hold on this year. And and some people use it as an opportunity to, to save, quite frankly. Like they were comfortable and they, they had good jobs and they had stuff that was kind of keeping them going. And they said, you know, I'm I just I, I'm, I'm OK with just just taking what I need to live right now and putting everything else in the bank. People and are just kind of riding re- it out. Yeah, jigged it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's the one that we're really paying attention to. And, and again, when we talk about our get real question of the week, dictating or, 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 or directing some of our editorial directions on the show. Um, here's one. Uh, we're going to be talking to mental health counselors. We want to provide resources. Dr. Peter Silverstone is going to join us again, the psychiatrist that many of you fell in love with during his last appearance on the show. When it comes to your mental health, out of the several hundred respondents we have so far, tell us about the status we asked of your mental health. 16% of respondents said it's much worse off than January of 2020. 46% said it's a little worse off than January of 2020, which means that 62% of respondents, 62% said that their mental health is either a little or much worse off than January of 2020. So we're going to do our part as as your friends. We're going to do our part as, as community contributors here to provide the resources as best we can uh, to get us focused uh, collectively and individually heading into 2021. So that'll be in shows to come. Tomorrow's show is going to be a good one. We're very much looking forward to it. One of the interviews we've confirmed, I haven't even told you yet, Johnny Infamous. He DJ'd an empty barn at the Stanley Cup Finals. He's back at it with the World Juniors. He's going to talk to us about being a hype man with nobody in the rink. And then that special broadcast on Thursday. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 8.30 Mountain Time. Thanks for watching Real Talk.